always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Hello, and welcome to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I'm your host, Emmanuel Perryman. I'd like to welcome my next guest, who is, like Victoria, another returning guest, and that is my cousin, Nate Duell. Hi, Nate. Hello. So we are talking today about the movie You Only Live Once, which uh, was directed by Fritz Lang and stars Henry Fonda and Sylvia Sidney. And the reason I chose this movie was, really, it was kind of selfish. It's because I hadn't seen it, and I had actually bought the DVD. It was one of those situations where I saw the DVD and was like, oh, Henry Fonda, Fritz Lang, I should get this. And I bought it, and then I just never watched it. And so since we're... um, quarantining, I've been catching up on movies that I haven't seen, and I uh, think I had asked you if you had seen it, and you hadn't. And so and so we thought, well, let's look at this movie, and we, we did have specific questions that we were, wanted to answer. Uh, one of them was, how does this movie fit in the Fritz Lang uh, oeuvre? Um, also, how does it fit in Henry Fonda's uh, work? And how does it fit within the genre of film noir, or does it? So, we've both watched it, and I think you said you took notes while you watched the movie? I took, uh, I took a plethora of notes, to be sure. I didn't, have <laughs> to say. I watched it, and I, I mean, I guess I took mental notes, but I... I in terms of note taking, I did more note taking in my from my research um, and you know books that I had. So this will be interesting to see uh, to sort of compare notes. So let's start with the easy one. Did you like the movie? I very much enjoyed the movie. Yeah, and it shouldn't surprise you, you know, as someone you know who is a former teacher of film lit. Of course, I'm going to take notes. Yes. <laughs> several years and it was actually considered um well before we get into that we should probably give just a little synopsis it's um was loosely based on bonnie and clyde and 
it is centered on Henry Fonda, who in the beginning of the movie is being released from jail. And it's... Three-time offender at that point? I think that he had been... I don't think he was yet a third... I don't think he was a third-time offender. I think it was like, if you do it again, then you'll be a third-time offender, and then you, gotcha. they'll throw away the key. That's right. He's and, no stranger to the prison. Right, right. And his girlfriend, who's his loyal girlfriend, Syl- Sylvia Sidney, who's been waiting for him these last few years, works for the district attorney. So it's a, a little interesting sort of combination of uh, criminal and I don't know, the woman on the other side of the law? <laughs> what did you think of their relationship? Yeah, it was, it was uh, strange because they didn't really give you much background into how that relationship was established. In fact, I think, I, I don't know if I want to say that's a flaw of the film because I don't think it was necessary to have that. Uh, but initially, it it almost sets up this love triangle between the public defender and Sylvia Sidney and, and Henry Fonda. Yeah, I said district attorney, but I meant public defender. Yeah, yeah. So you have this, this there's definitely tension there because Whitney, I believe, is the, uh, no, uh, yeah, Whitney maybe, I think, is the, the attorney's name. Yeah, yeah. He definitely likes her. He's definitely interested in her. Uh, but he... He's one of the uh, a handful couple of, of good guys in the movie because he puts those feelings aside and actually works hard for Eddie Taylor, Henry Fonda's Well, character. I don't even think he puts them aside. I think he does it because he loves her, that he knows, you know, yeah. he loves her so much that he's going to help the man who she loves. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I mean, he goes to the point of getting him a job outside uh, of prison, and even when things turn uh, sideways later on, he's still trying to work for uh, for for Taylor, and at that point, then Sylvia Sidney's character Joan as well. Right, right. Now, these genre that it is considered in is social melodrama. Noir didn't even exist as a genre and certainly not as you know they wouldn't have called it that they wouldn't the term didn't exist so it was a social melodrama but it is considered to be in the family of in like sort of in the family tree of noir without it there wouldn't be noir it's certainly one of the building blocks towards it yeah i would i would actually call it a transitional noir piece because if you look at the the, the four major uh, elements that influence noir, you have the German expressionists. Yeah. Uh, you have you have the crime movies of the thirty thirties. Yeah. You have the pulp uh, the pulp uh, writings. Yeah. And then you have uh, I think some of the French movies. Yes. That predate this. Those are the four main influences that kind of created the noir genre. And then I think also throwing in a world war, <laughs> you know, brought, brought the noir genre together. Yes. Uh, so if you look at that, there are elements. Obviously, the German expressionism with Lang directing, but there are elements that you see. So that's the term I came up with as I was trying to, to answer that question you asked. Is is it is it part of that? And I think I call it transitional because. 
To be honest, every genre is going to have changes over time. Right. You know, I think one of the things we discussed last time uh, was we talked a lot about genre. And I think one of the questions that I've always thought about is, is noir still a viable genre? And you might say, no, not in its original existence. Right. Uh, because honestly, <laughs> one of my thoughts has always been, can you make a noir picture in color? <laughs> well, right. obviously you've seen some over the years, Chinatown, right. uh, LA Confidential, you've seen some. Yeah. I also, I also think those have changed. So I think genre does change over time and over influence. And so the noir that we know, the sort of textbook film noir, yes, that existed and that is the, that's the meaty version of the genre. But I think it, you see alterations because ultimately genre is a cultural uh, element to film. The, the, whatever the time that the film is being made in, even if it's a period piece, it's going to be affected. Uh, that genre is going to be affected by that. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, noir is one of those genres that, unlike the Western, it, as you know, there's even a debate, is it a genre? Is it a genre or is it just a style? I think that it's both. Um, <laughs> Because you can have a movie that is not noir that has noir elements to it. Uh, But think of a movie like um, Memento. You know, Memento is certainly, is it noir? I don't know if it's noir per se, but it certainly has noir elements to it. Um, You know, even even Christopher Nolan's Batman, The Dark Knight, has, has noir elements. And then you get into... The Terminator, which is like, you know, they even say in the movie, tech noir. Tech noir, right. You know, um, or Blade Runner. So there are certainly movies that, if they are not pure noir genre, they certainly pull from it and are influenced by it. Yeah, let me, let me share a little bit of, of uh, background I, I found on the movie. The writers of the film, Gene uh, Town, Graham Baker, they were not even later on in their careers, did not sort of write in the noir genre. Uh, In fact, I think one of their big, they they were kind of middling writers, to be honest, and and one of their big projects later on was an early uh, film adaptation of Swiss Family Robinson. Well, if that's not noir, I don't know what is. Yes. Uh, he has just come over from Germany. Uh, he was not a Nazi sympathizer, so he got the hell out of there uh, and was making. Uh, and he also probably saw the writing on the wall in terms of, of, of uh, the film scene in Germany. It wasn't going to be very uh, yeah. prolific. And so that's when you see Wang and uh, Billy Wilder, even a very young Billy Wilder, that's when they start to come over. Um, uh, to the U.S. and to Hollywood. So they had some good people. Uh, Alexander Tobolov was the AD. And mm-hmm. the AD, you know, the, the, uh, the art director, uh, is really essential in a noir-type uh, picture. Because as you said, stylistically, that's what a lot of, uh, of the definition of noir is. And he did have a... He went on to have a noir career. 
as did uh, the director of photography, the cinematographer, Leon Shamroy. Uh, some, but he was incredibly experienced at the time, as was the, the editor, Daniel Mandel, three-time Oscar winner, and actually worked, uh, he was Billy Wilder's editor late in Wilder's career. So they had guys that, um, that definitely, it was a mixed bag. Some were, uh, some were very experienced, uh, and very uh, good at their craft. Some went on to some noir things, but mostly it, it, they really didn't. So again, I think that fits into what we're saying as an early example of noir or a transitional piece. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I, I read a little bit about Lang before he came to the U.S., and he was actually embroiled in a bit of a scandal himself, which very much informed his his pictures afterwards and the story goes that he was home uh canoodling with a woman who was not his wife (laughs) and and his wife came home found them went upstairs and shot herself with his gun that's the story that he tells now there was scandal because not everyone believed that story and a number of people believed that she did not kill herself, that he did it, that he did it, that because supposedly she had called someone and planned like a shopping trip and then basically said, oh, I'm going to go take a bath and then they were going to meet to go shopping and then she killed herself in the bathtub. And so um, that, this whole you know, his whole theme of the wronged man, you know, the man who's been, as a result of mob mentality, is, is persecuted and all of that. I mean, so a lot of those themes didn't come from out of the blue. Right, right. Well, that's, that's interesting because one of the first notes that I, that I wrote down was how many implications in this film are still relevant today? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, recidivism and the difficulty for uh, convicts when they get, you know, out of out of uh, when they serve their time and they come out, you know, he can't. It's really difficult. Nobody will give him a chance or a break. Uh, and like you said, the power of the media. I thought it very interesting and probably exactly what you were just saying that as uh, things happened in the course of the movie and as they go on their spree their crime spree um they enter they intercut with like the journalism aspect of what's going on yes and how people hear about this guy uh this this man and this woman out there and so they almost predict or expect what's going to happen even before they roll into town and they're never given that opportunity but, uh, right. Yeah, so I think there is a criticism on the power of the media and the judicial system at the time, which, again, we still face these these issues today. Oh sure, oh sure, uh, and and I think also the idea that there's a coldness to and detached detachedness, I guess if that's a word, yeah. um, of the media, where they have that scene where you see the three different headlines, guilty, not guilty, 
you know, whatever, uh, acquitted, and and they're just ready to go which, with, with whichever one, right. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't care. There isn't there isn't any emotion that behind it. It's just this is the news, and we're gonna get it out, and we're you know. Sure. Um, so that was definitely was um, explored or or at least suggested that the the media is not is not your friend. Yeah, yeah, and I think that as we're talking about some of the things that are noir about the movie, the criminal themes. Uh, the darkness of the film, even though that wasn't consistent throughout, uh, there was, I mean, still the concept was, was dark. The female influence. Now, I would not call Sylvia Sidney a femme fatale in this film. No, no, there is not a femme fatale. No, in no. fact, it may be that it's, the genders are flipped here, and Fonda's character is more of a male fatale. Sort of an homme fatale, yeah, in a way. Yeah, right? Uh, so, uh, but there is, uh, you see that corruption, you see the greed. Uh, I think that's interesting. There was an interesting scene where they stop and they rob a gas station to get the fuel to fill up their car. Yeah. And the guys, the gas, t- the guys at the gas station are calling the police, saying, "Oh yeah, they robbed us for the gas and the money in the cash register," which they didn't. But those guys took the money out of the cash register. Right. Right. And there's certainly that sort of aspect of, of greed with some of the characters, and absolutely the, the concept of cynicism uh, is, I think, pretty rich in this movie, which is uh, a, a significant feature of noir. Well, and one of the things I think is very interesting is that this movie came out in 37, so the audiences who saw it definitely knew Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. You know, they knew the story that was actually based on their their 1934 spree which is three years before yeah certainly better than audience watching you know Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty in the uh, what was that late 69 68 69 yeah yeah better than they did yeah yes but even then I mean you're still talking it's only 30 years I mean there were people who certainly would have been alive um, but, but yeah, definitely three years is, is way, you know, very short amount of time. It's, it was current, it was practically current events. Yeah. Um, the audience would have known what they were, what they were referencing. And interestingly, it didn't do well box office wise, but it was, but it was actually critically successful. Um, sure. I think there was a Times review that basically said, you know, it's, it's enthralling. It's exciting. Um, they really praised the di- the direction. I will say, so he had done Fury, the movie Fury, right before this with with Spencer Tracy, and Sylvia Sidney had been in that movie as well. So she was used to his style of direction. Henry Fonda was not, and he did not gel well with Lang. Some scenes that were like really simple would shoot like 50 times, do like 50 takes. Uh, and and Fonda said it was, there would be times where he would literally be doing a scene and Lang would move his hand. And he's like, I understand to a certain extent if you're moving my hand into the camera, but you don't need to tell me how to hold something. I think that there, there was definitely, 
while Fonda was certainly not method, because that didn't exist at that point, really, but he definitely was more, I would say, a step towards being more uh, naturalistic. Sure. And well, I think, yeah, it, you know, I, I read recently a biography of Jimmy Stewart, and you know, James Stewart and Fonda were best friends. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, they're definitely two yeah. sides of the same coin. Yeah, um, and I think one of the things that uh, that makes Henry Fonda unique is, and not to say that this isn't common, but one of his first loves was the stage, and he was definitely a uh, a stage actor in his uh, coming up, in his right. established himself. So it wouldn't, you know, that doesn't surprise me to hear about, you know, those those run-ins because he was the guy who would rehearse, and then once the cameras were rolling or once the, the lights were up, then he was ready to go. Right. So, and, I, and I actually think, you know, I haven't thought about, a lot about Henry Fonda because his career is... is Huge. I mean, a long, successful career, and every you know everybody obviously knows him and his progeny, to be sure. Right. Uh, but one of the things I used to talk about with my with my uh, students is the difference between a movie star and an actor. Right. Uh, and I think certainly Henry Fonda had that movie star appeal, the box office appeal. But he was not a movie star. To me, and this is how I explain it to my students, a movie star is someone like Bruce Willis. Right. You know, if there's a Bruce Willis movie, you know what you're going to get. If there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie coming out, you know what you're going to get. Even to a certain extent, someone like Keanu Reeves. Or Tom Cruise, I think, is the ultimate. Tom Cruise, for sure, for sure. Their actors, their movie stars are, hey, this, you know, pictures coming out it doesn't matter what the title of it is or what it's even about if you see this person attached to it you know what you're gonna get right. they really don't have to play anybody other than this one character right created. Uh, and an actor typically you know doesn't have that sort of cachet but is obviously vital to uh to any movies and i think He's an interesting. Uh, he's an interesting type because he had the, the movie star sort of image and appeal, but he was an actor. Yeah. This movie really kind of uh, cemented in the kind of flexibility that he had in his, you know, in his style and the way he did things, which again I think harkens back to a stage background. And I feel like he actually got better. Like in the, as the when the when the movie first started, I went. Because I love Henry Fonda, but I just thought, I don't know if he's going to work for this. He's sort of, I don't want to say weak, but he's not the tough guy that you think, oh, this guy's a bad guy, and he's he's a loose cannon, and you know, it's not like a Cagney or an Edward G. Robinson, or even like a Robert Mitchum. But I have to say that I ended up liking him more than I thought I would in that movie. I felt like he actually got better. At the beginning, I just thought, I don't believe that this that he's been in jail all this time. Right, right. He didn't seem that hardened. But I felt like by the end, I don't know, by the end, I believed it. He won me over. 
So the question you have to ask is Lang saying that can happen to somebody? You know, is this sort of a, a falling down with Michael Beckley? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I think to a certain extent, yes. I mean, I think, again, for Fury, he used Spencer Tracy, who's another sort of in that Henry Fonda vein right. Of, right. of being a sort of everyman type of character. So I definitely think that he very intentionally wanted people who you would not expect. Right. And also, you want to have, clearly, Wang wants the viewer to have sympathy for these two. And if that's Edward G. Robinson, right. I'm not sure you have the sympathy, even if the narrative is such that, that you're supposed to. Right. So maybe, yeah, maybe that is kind of purposeful. I think it, no, I think it was definitely, definitely purposeful. It was funny, actually. So Theodore Dreiser, who we know goes on to do uh, A Place in the Sun, he was, he was the one who actually started this, this movie, this project, long before Lang was brought in. He had been researching Bonnie and Clyde's 1934 spree. And he happened to run into Sylvia Sidney and the producer of You Only Live Once, uh, Walter Wanger, and, and basically said, if you ever do a movie about Bonnie and Clyde, Sylvia Sidney's got to be Bonnie. <laughs> and from that, they, then they, got these, they started doing it. There was actually, I think, another movie bef- before You Only Live Once that I now can't remember the name of where she kind of did play a Bonnie character, but this was much more... I mean, the fact that even the, the, her sister, the character of her sister in the movie, it's not an accident that her name is Bonnie. Right, right. Yeah. Just in case you weren't sure. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I actually worked with Sylvia Sidney on her last project. I did not know that. Yes, do you remember uh, when we were both out in in, the, in Hollywood? Yes. On, uh, the remake of Fantasy Island. Oh my God, yes, I remember that. And Sylvia Sidney was uh, was one of the characters on the on the show. Uh, she was, I, I think she died very shortly after that. In fact, I want to say maybe even before... Uh, the show ended up getting, yeah, she died in 99, so it was it was literally her last project. Now, I was in post-production, so I never got to meet her, which is disappointing to me, but uh, uh, I did get to uh, to work. Say, I can say that I worked on the same project. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's more than most people can say. <laughs> which is, which is uh, one of those notches on, on the old... Uh, uh, resume, I suppose. Yes, that that I think that definitely qualifies you for a for a for a six degrees, <laughs> Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I think that uh, you know I, one of my notes was when I was looking at what wasn't noir about this movie is that it was more of a traditional crime story, yes, and less psychological. But now as we've discussed that, I'm not, I think I might have to amend that position a little bit uh, because I think there is a cycle. It's not the Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity kind of psychological right. uh, aspect, but there is, there is a, 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 
psychological aspect to it. And I think that's what you're describing in, in how we feel about Henry Fonda yeah. and, and how he, in this movie, sort of changes uh, without really changing. Well, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I feel like the turnaround for me was when they're on their honeymoon. I think it was on their honeymoon. And he, he starts to talk about how he got to where he is, why he was in jail. So he did something dumb when he was a kid. He stole something. He did something petty as a kid. And that put him into delinquency school or whatever, put him into, into juvenile detention type of situation. And I feel like there's, there's a psychological element to that. I mean, the, the suggestion being that once you know society punishes you for one infraction, you're forever branded. Yeah, certainly. I think there's another uh, a big psychological moment for the character is uh, with Father Perkin. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here's a guy who's the prison uh, the prison pastor, the prison minister, whatever. Was that Father Dolan? Uh, I think Father it's Dolan. I think. Dolan. Yes. I, had a, I combined the name of the actor and the... Well, I guess it's a Birkin bag. <laughs> William Gargan uh, played the character, and William Gargan was one of those uh, people that will pop up in things all over the place. And I thought his role needed a little bit more to be more relevant. Yes, um, I agree. But, but he does flip that psychological switch a little bit kind of sears the fate of Eddie Taylor uh, when he's, you know, escaping from prison that last time. Uh, and the fact that he has been proved innocent, but uh, he still thinks go sideways. So there's, uh, gosh, there's, there's a lot of layers to this movie. And uh, while some people can maybe look at that as flaws, uh, I think that it's a... It's just a, a movie that's more subtle. It's not going to slap you across the face, right? Uh, and I think, and I think that is a that's kind of lag. That's his touch a little bit, uh, as I think is the touch of most great filmmakers. Yeah. Um, you know, Billy Wilder was was known to say, "Listen, don't tell the audience two and two makes four. Put two and two up there and let them figure it out." Right. Right. Uh, and I and I think that's a little bit of Lang here as well. You know, the, the lazier cinema viewer doesn't maybe appreciate that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think I think that uh, I think that's an important aspect of uh, filmmaking. Definitely, and he was very one of the things that Fonda didn't care for was actually on the you know to a certain extent a positive, which was. He was very detail-oriented. I mean, he moved his hand because he knew exactly where he wanted his hand to be in his finger. You know, but he also, like, he went to San Quentin and toured San Quentin and really took, you know, copious notes and and illustrations because he really wanted... And I would say that that prison sequence is probably the most expressionist that he got in the film. It's not... You know, it. This isn't M or you know Metropolis. Like it's not rife with expressionism, but I felt like that prison scene was was sort of the the, the most of his sure, expressionist uh, style came through there. I think you're right. I think that you know Wang up to that point in 
in his career is known for these stylized sets, the Metropolis studio set that was just, you know, uh, that was what it was. And, and, uh, and in M, even in M, which was not, I mean, it was, it was still highly stylized, even though the sets weren't, they weren't Metropolis sets. But right. uh, I do think that there was definitely a Hollywood influence on this. And, you know, you're talking about Fury, and that was the Hollywood uh, studio forced a different ending to that. Right. Uh, and that kind of, that soured Lang a little bit on Hollywood. Uh, and you could tell, uh, and, and I think the melodrama that you mentioned early on, the muse, the melodramatic music is certainly there, and that was a, a bit off-putting for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I got it, and I'm glad it wasn't too much, but they're on their honeymoon, and they're listening to the bullfrogs yeah. sing. And, and that was a laying thing, to put the, the frogs in. And actually... Yeah. You know, when, of course, they hearken back to the frogs in the final scene. When one dies, the other one dies as well. Spoiler alert, they die. But I did say it's Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know. I don't think you can say spoiler alert. You have to say it on a 73-year-old movie. <laughs> exactly. 83-year-old movie. Yeah, yeah. I think that, well, they the, the ending was actually going to be a little different and Lang actually was the one who who had him carry her and fall holding her and die kissing her. Um, that was Lang's uh, addition to it. And I have to say, because I know you've seen the movie, the end of You Only Live Once, how similar to the end of Gun Crazy is it? I mean, almost shot for shot walking through the yeah. woods, and not just walking through woods, but with that smoke, yeah. that heavy smoke-filled yeah. uh, look, I thought, well, pff. I mean, it may not be a noir film, but it it directly influenced. Yeah. I got to tell you, there was so much uh, that I saw in this movie that I, that I noticed in other movies, how influential, and I don't know if it's this... It, it's probably not this movie as much as it's just Lang's style. It was so influential to filmmakers over the next, you know, 50 years, for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. That, uh, that I saw, oh, I've seen that little bit in this movie. I've seen that little bit in this movie. It just, right. I think, you know, your mentioning of the prison scene, there was a lot that I saw, boy, I wonder if Frank Darabont yes. this movie he was doing Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Felt so influenced and felt so similar to that. Yes, yes, definitely. And Shawshank has noir elements Absolutely. to it, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. very much so. And also thematically, I mean, just the idea of a, a wrongly convicted man who's sent to prison. Yeah. Yep. We all know what happens there. But um, <laughs> t- time and pressure. <laughs> I think that one thing that was clearly uh, Hollywood to me was the music in this. Uh, and it was, this was more of a time period. Uh, yeah. And again, I think because it wasn't a crime film. They didn't necessarily want to you know, mark it as a crime film because that was kind of, you know, in 37, the, the crime movies of the 30s, 
were headed out. It's mostly because of the Hayes Code, to be right, frank. Right, right. Uh, you know, they're transitioning to this different, uh, this different era of cinema. So some of that sweeping, you know, dramatic music was seemed kind of out of place. Yeah. In the in the honeymoon scene, I, I can accept it there, but there were other places where it was used, and uh, uh, I can certainly see how Lang was was often frustrated by studio influence. Right. Right. Yeah. No, he definitely he definitely was, and I think he had had issues with Fury too, and yeah. so he actually had to sort of plead his case, so to speak, to yeah. to the producer. Um, before they brought him on and basically said, you know, this is what happened and, and yeah. you know, this is why I'm not at fault. Right, right. But then he sort of shot himself in the foot because after it came out, he said, oh, he had wanted a prologue that sort of, ex- that what you said, that sort of gave a backstory to how Fonda became this character, like how this character ended up where they ended up and acted like, you know, it was the producer and that he wasn't allowed to do the prologue. Now, there wasn't any suggestion that a prologue had ever been suggested or written or anything, but he said that he had wanted to do one. And actually, I think a movie that had come out the same year, San Quentin, did have a prologue. And, And in a way... um. I think he had sort of wanted that, or at least he said he did. And, I, you know, it's one of those things, did he really want one, or was it just after the movie came out and it didn't do well? Did he say, oh, I had wanted this, but... That would have made the difference. That would have made the difference. I think that part of the artistic process is that you go through so many variations of, of your vision for whether it's you know a painting or, or a novel or a film you go through so many variations in the creative process that there's probably a chance that at some point he said you know a prologue would be nice here whether that was a fleeting thought or whatever and then of course i think the the, the second or the the post script if you will of the creative process is to be reflective about it and i think those artists who take the time and reflect and see and learn from every every creation that's those are the ones that that stand the test of time because they get better at what they do even if they're very good at it so i i would be i wouldn't be willing to bet that it wasn't both of those (laughs) right that he had in his head at some point and went out we're not gonna have time for this or i don't know i can fit in or uh, or maybe he looked at it afterwards and said damn (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. And so that's going to, then it was like, you know, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> type of thing. You know, I said I wanted it and they said no. No, I thought, um, I definitely, it was a little, I have to say, maybe a, just a tad boring to me. Parts of it, I felt, I actually thought it maybe could have been a little tighter, but... Yeah. There were things that I thought, I don't need, this This section doesn't need to be there, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I, it's not like I thought it was a bad movie. And I definitely, I thought the second half, the second half I think is better than the first half. Agreed, agreed. It's certainly not a desert island movie for me. No. Uh, but, I, you know, I think as a study, 
that's why I enjoyed it as much as I did because I was I was studying it more than watching it. Right. Maybe I'll watch it again just to watch it, not think about anything else. <laughs> I'll give it some time though, you know. Yeah. But but I thought it was I thought it was a successful movie in that uh, that the, the narrative was told. It was told with with some layers. But it's yeah, certainly I would not call it a tight picture at all. No, it's not. It's not To Kill a Mockingbird of movies. <laughs> no, uh, no. You know my you know my love of that novel. Yes, uh, yes. Watching this movie and, and and having some questions, but honestly, I mean, you know that that's that's the case with with any piece of art. If you go and you go to a museum and you don't know anything about a particular artist. Or if you go into a museum and you look at paintings that you have discussed or studied, it's a totally different experience. Oh, definitely, definitely. If, so if you go in knowing a little bit or looking for certain things, you're going to have a different experience rather than uh, going in and just sort of being uh, a blank slate, so to speak. Right. Uh, things affect you. And I'm not suggesting... Uh, I think both are fine. I think there are some things you want to do just with the experience, especially in this day and age with spoilers around every corner. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> especially when it comes to movies. Uh, but it's... I think that, uh, I, I do think that more engaged you can be watching a film, the more you're going to get out of it. Uh, and the less you will see, uh, you know, a bad movie is a bad movie. And we all know what a bad movie is <laughs> Yes. Uh, and, and that sticks out whether or not you're prepared for it. Uh, you're prepared for it. So uh, I think this was a good experience for me watching this film, uh, having a few things in mind. It did keep me a little more engaged, uh, but I but I certainly still saw things that that I don't know that didn't appeal to me or that were maybe unnecessary, like you said. I would say that in conclusion, I would say that we both think in terms of work, it's probably a more obscure and lesser film in both the works of, of Lang and Fonda. Certainly. But it is an important film for the film noir genre. Absolutely. That I would say, I would definitely, if someone is, is interested in noir and is interested in seeing a movie that it definitely both indirectly and directly influenced it i would i would recommend watching this movie particularly if you know like you said gangster movies expressionism if you're familiar with the sort of building blocks of noir yeah this is a little bit off the interesting to watch like uh the public enemy Right? Right. Or any, any of the sort of Cagney, Robinson, 30s, uh, uh, Paul Muni, something right, like that. Right, right. And then watch this, and then watch something, I don't know, out of the past. Right. Know, something that's so clearly, something that's that crime, and then something that bookended with that was clearly film noir. Right. But see this in the middle, I think puzzle pieces would start to come together for sure yeah i agree i agree and i would say to that other movies that are sort of in the vein of 
You Only Live Once would be what they would call the social melodramas of the day. I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Yes, yes. Is definitely in there. Yep. Um, and Fury, Lang's other film, uh, first film before, you know, uh, before this one. I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang actually had direct influence on the prison system at the t- of the time. I mean, there were actually prison reforms made as a result of that movie. Uh, And I think that is even more very directly connected to film noir, even though it's not technically a noir. But it starts with a guy. I mean, it's narration. It's flashback. It's told all in flashback. And that's the great thing about watching films, especially watching old films here in 2020. We can look back. Uh, with this, you know, this really cool vision to be able to see what what got us to this point, and I think that is the, to me, that's the number one reason, or at least the most interesting reason, to watch classic cinema, to watch old films, to enjoy old films, because we didn't get to where we are today with the great films that come out today without all of that influencing it. Right. If you think of. Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese, they didn't pop out of blue air, of thin air. I mean, they came, they were influenced. And and even, um, you know, more contemporary, if you go into Spike Lee or Ava DuVernay or whatever, every director that's working now, they didn't just, they didn't just poof and were there. They, they, you know, I mean, they, well, many of them went to film school and studied this, and studied this, this, this work. Well, I think about, and you know my favorite director is Billy Wilder. Yes. And Billy Wilder had the sign above his desk that said, what would Lubitsch do? Right. He was so influenced by Ernst Lubitsch. And then, you know, jump forward, Cameron Crowe is incredibly influenced by Billy Wilder. Yes. I think that, you know, there's nobody's hiding this. Right. People are going to say, I learned from this master, or I learned from this master, and you can see it in their work. And I feel like one of the sort of epitomes of that is Tarantino. Sure, absolutely. Who I, you know, go back and forth on. I don't love, but I totally, I respect and I can appreciate. Um, I'm probably one of the few people that didn't fall over backwards for Pulp Fiction. But um, uh, I actually prefer Jackie Brown, personally. I I personally prefer Jackie Brown to Pulp Fiction, which is probably a... Kind of very controversial statement, but, but you know, I, I get it, but I also, you know, Pam Greer. You know, but Tarantino is definitely one of these who takes liberally and gratuitously oh, yeah. from from everyone. Shame, yeah. yeah, and he will say this came from whatever. I mean, he's lifted dialogue and scene. I mean, he's lifted generously <laughs> yeah it's sort of like musicians today that sample music from definitely <laughs> definitely he is definitely the the sample director <laughs> which doesn't it's is neither good or bad it just is i mean it just certainly does well with it but, but i think the key is that you know fritz lang especially for anybody who's not familiar with fritz lang and that's not a hundred percent egregious if you don't necessarily know who, who Fritz Lang is because, you know, uh, 
probably the two pictures he's most well known for are from German cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think anybody who probably has studied uh, uh, films knows who Fritz Lang is, or at least is aware of Fritz Lang. But if anybody's, this is this is one of the early masters of of uh, of film, of filmmaking, and even and when I say early masters, you know, thirties. Uh, I don't know. Did he ever make any silent pictures? Well, is it Metropolis silent? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, was thinking, da, da, da. I, was think, I was thinking earlier than that, but yeah, I'm looking at it now. He, made, he started making pictures in 1919. No, he definitely made silent films. Jeez, I don't know. That was a brain fart right there. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> uh, but I think that he's, he's important to be aware of for anybody who's interested in film. Uh, and I think that, uh, that you won't be disappointed if, if you get into his movie. This movie was remade in 1958 in Turkey. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. A Turkish remake. That, I would love to see that. <laughs> I would literally pay money to see that. That sounds awesome. And I mean, Bonnie and Clyde, even, you know, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, of course, of took, course. Definitely took from this, too. I will say, one of my issues with it was, was time. There were certain scenes where I would, I would think, oh, wait, how much time has passed? Wait, where? Like, it seemed, once they were on the road, I, I, I you know... I, the time was the was a little the janky. The narrative advanced, but it wasn't. You're right. It wasn't super clear about that. It was a little jumpy. I mean, she went uh, she went from being from learning she was pregnant to having the baby, in about two scenes, and that and that was a very str- odd choice. I mean, it was it seemed Christ-like to me. I mean, she was, like, in a manger. I mean, he basically, like, leaves her in a shack in the woods to to give birth to this kid. And he comes in, and it's like, there's hay, and she's... I mean, it just seemed a little Mary and Joseph-like. <laughs> to me, I thought, well, that's a sort of strange... I don't know. I mean, I understand that they couldn't go to a hospital, but... That just, that whole setup seemed a little odd, seemed a little odd to me. And then I guess at some point they were in contact with her sister. I don't know when that happened. But yeah, there, was some, there was some crazy jumps around there. But again, I think you got, it was clear that there was a passage of time and that this was advancing in this way, but it, there was nothing that really helped us along with that we figure there was at least about nine months to a year that elapsed right because right? we see her have we see her get well we don't see her give birth but we see we hear that she's pregnant she has the baby so that has to be nine months i'm assuming and then she hands the baby off who at this point looks like he's about six months old but i think that's just i think that's just casting <laughs> Well, and I think, how many times have you seen a, a birth happen on a TV show or in a film and go, that kid's not a newborn. <laughs> that kid's like two years old. He's got a full head of hair and is eating already. Yeah. No, that definitely, so the, the kid looked a little old. But then, but then 
she leaves the kid, which I actually, if you're gonna do this life, that was the right decision to make. It was the right thing, yeah. He was, I mean, she said until I concerned for him, but you could kind of tell that her heart wasn't totally behind that notion. Yeah, I mean, I think she knew how that was gonna end. The maternal instinct was there, but the sort of uh, logical side of her was also... Well, I think it was the maternal instinct that... That drove her to give to, to give the, her baby to her yeah. sister yeah. Uh, to keep, you know, because I think she knew how it was going to go. Yeah. And so that was, she did her one real maternal act by giving the kid to her sister. And uh, now how much time passed between dropping the kid off and the ending? I don't think much time. No, no. I mean, I think maybe a couple... That was like a day or two. Because don't you think that she knew that dropping the child off was going to be... had to be near the end because it was going to give away. Because they're on the run. And when they they do this, and you had to think, well, uh, this is going to give us away. Uh, pretty significantly, but it's an important thing we have to do. So yeah, I do think that was one of the the final act, the final significant acts of their life. So in summation, <laughs> we would recommend this movie, maybe not to the casual film watcher, but if you really are a film noir fan and want to see where where it came from, one of the influences, I definitely recommend this. Or even if you're just if you're really a Henry Fonda fan. I would recommend and it. it. And it's not a it's not a huge commitment. At eighty six minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's not this epic. <laughs> exactly. Down the hatches for. So. Exactly, and it is available to watch for free on uh, the website internetarchive.com, which is where I found it. And by the way, if uh, and if you have Amazon Prime, it's free there. I believe that's where I watched it. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And by the way, if if you need any more example of its influence you only need to look at the james bond catalog yes in 1967 sean connery was in you only live twice yes so that's there's there's not a coincidence there i don't think I, probably not probably not <laughs> he even goes out i don't remember what the year it was oh man her majesty's secret service george lazenby yeah yeah um Seven, sixty-eight. Okay, it's sort of a a bit of a fugitive on the run, but they they have a Bonnie and Clyde moment. Yeah, yeah, they do shootout. Yeah. Hey, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you having me on again. I think this is always a lot of fun. Yeah, and, uh, this was great. Keep up, keep up the great work. Thank you, and I'm and thank you for for joining me. This was a great talk. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Real Woman. I'd just like to clarify that Bonnie and Clyde was 1967, not 1969. Enjoy your evening.